I really have been thinking a lot about this verse. I'm going to read it to you. Um, Romans chapter 1 verse um, 16 and 17. And I'll read it to you from the New American Standard uh, 2020. And it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. So Father, we pray that you would give us a vision of, of that which you have for us this morning as we wrap our minds around this incredible declaration. Very plain and yet uh, so deep and so full. And that you would help us, Lord, to, to really grab a hold of, of that which you have for us this morning. So we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might hear what the spirit would say to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So when we read that, that, that we are not ashamed of the gospel... And as I, as I, as I thought about, about this, um, this particular verse is in, in that, that I I, I'm hoping that this becomes thematic of how it informs this next year and how we walk through 2022 because, and, and I, don't, I don't consider myself a prophet on this, right? But I just feel like this next year is going to be a lot like the last one, which was a lot like the one before that. You know, I, it, if air travel over the holiday season is any indicator at all, I have a friend of mine, he was stuck in Fairbanks for a week. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, it, and it was cold. Um, so he got to Anchorage where instead of being minus 30, it was minus 14 or something anyway. But, but then he, had to, he, he got to Anchorage and he actually had to spend the night in Anchorage. I don't know if he's gotten home yet, to be honest with you. I sent him a text last night. Are you back yet? Um, he lives in Reno. But, but um, it, it, we, we live in difficult times. We live in times where it is very tempting to politicize everything. We politicize masks. We politicize vaccines. We, we, we politicize our politics to a degree that I, that I, that I, this feels again still like the 60s without the peace. All right? There's just a lot of really angry people out there. And the thing about anger is, is attractive. It's enticing to our flesh. Isn't it fun to get, can I be real blunt this morning? Isn't it fun just to get pissed off? Okay? Especially when you are holding the, your, your view in such a way that you know that you know that you know that you're right. Which, by the way, when you are right, that's when we're the most dangerous to other people. 
But nonetheless, it, there's almost a gratification. I showed them. I put it on Facebook. Now everybody gets to see it. Who cares, right? Who cares? And it, you know, I, I look at the right, the conservatives, and I don't think they've got a good answer. I look at the left, and they definitely don't have any good answers. And I am reminded that we are kingdom people. That we have been saved from all that stuff. I'm not going to be that blunt this morning, okay? We've been saved from that. We've been called to a higher ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm almost tempted to scrap Romans and go into the Sermon on the Mount this, this year. Maybe we'll do it later on. Because to be honest with you, I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. Because if I'm really going to take it seriously, it convicts the daylights out of me. And it is hard. It really is hard. Blessed are the peacemakers. Who wants to be a peacemaker in this, this time? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness sake, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning, where they will be filled. That means I have to set aside what I have interpreted within my own soul as righteous anger. I don't want to do that. And I have to be careful even this morning that I make sure that I set it aside. And this just doesn't become an indulgence on my part to you, but nonetheless be an actual impartation from the Holy Spirit of God to you in describing how I believe we are called to navigate these days. We live by a different ethic we are a part of a different kingdom. And, and Paul comes right out and he says that I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's a cultural, I remember talking about this last year. That is a cultural, uh, uh, what's called a polemic or a cultural uh, uh, adversarial type of statement. Because they want you to be ashamed. They do. They don't like you. They want your vote. But they really would just wish that you would just shut up and go away. Psalm 2 is very clear about this. Why do the nations rage and they gather together against the Lord and against his anointed, which is the Messiah? Jesus said if they persecute him, they would persecute us. Paul gave his life. Who wrote this? For the gospel. And Paul stands up and he's speaking to the seat of power of the known world at that time. He's writing this to the church in Rome. 
Rome was all about politics and power. And being right. And, and it was then, it is today, a mentality of might is right. Which Jesus comes along and says, if anyone comes after me, let him take up his cross daily, deny himself, and follow me. He comes along and he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up in due time. He comes along and he says, those who would be the greatest in the kingdom would be the least of these. And he points to children who were insignificant in that culture. He totally flips the mindset right side up for those who have a here. An ear, excuse me, to hear. Paul had been imprisoned in Philippi. He'd been chased out of Thessalonica. He'd been smuggled out of Berea. He'd been laughed at in Athens. He got leapt down in a basket in Damascus. All these things he endured for the sake of the gospel. And yet, as he writes these things, he says to us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The Lord is my light and my salvation, the psalmist wrote, I think it's Psalm 34. Whom shall I fear? If he is truly the light and my salvation. Remember we talked about light and life not too long ago as we did a quick look in, on a Wednesday night in the book of John, in John chapter 1. And it says that, that, that he's not only not ashamed of the gospel, but he tells us why he's not ashamed. That the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. The message of the gospel. Now what does gospel mean? It means good news. We've kind of churchified it. I like that word, churchified. Anyway, never mind. The gospel is really given to us really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Where, where it, it tells where Jesus comes and he dies. And matter of fact, I'm going to read it to you because I'll miss something. But if you want a real snapshot of what the gospel is, I would encourage you to take a good look often at 1 Corinthians 15. It says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved. You stand, and you were saved. The gospel, the message of the gospel, enables you to stand. I'm hearing that song in the back of my head from that old prophet Tom Petty when he's saying, I won't back down. All right? That's what this is talking about here. If you hold fast, that is, if you stand fast, that the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, verse 3, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 
He died according to the scriptures. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Who? Christ, the Messiah. And if you really trace down who the Messiah is, the Messiah is none other than Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Christ dying, Christ resurrecting. That act of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and our belief in that enables us to become born again. But it is also then, as followers of Jesus, it becomes our pattern for how we are to live our lives. We suffer a million deaths. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you just are looking at me now like I just grew a second head. We suffer a million deaths. Or let's just back it up because a million is a lot. Thousands of deaths. Only to later on to achieve resurrections. I just quoted it earlier when Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 9 that if anyone come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. What does that mean? Is a cross a burden? Well, yes it is. But what was the, what was the purpose of a cross? It was a means of execution. That's a death. Take up his cross daily. Deny himself. That's a death. Who wants to deny themselves? I don't. But if I am a follower of Jesus Christ, is it my calling? Absolutely. So much for God loves you and has a wonderful plan of your life for your life, even though I I ultimately yes he does. But I think often we oversell that and then it becomes a demand. It's my right as a Christian. Or it's my right as an American. When we say it's my right, we need to be careful. <laughs> we do. We need to be careful. I'm not saying that you don't exercise your rights, but, but when we have been called to follow Jesus to take up our cross daily and deny ourselves... That totally flips around the culture that you and I live in. It's totally different. And I don't want to deny myself. And sometimes, yes, I, I, there are, there, obviously there are exceptions. And there are sometimes, yes, that I have to hold the situation that I am in in a slightly different context. All right? I'm, I'm not preaching be a doormat. Okay? That's important to understand. But the path of discipleship is self-denial. And if I'm honest with you all today, I don't like it. I don't. And knowing some of you the way I do, I know you don't like it either. Okay? I get that. But that's our calling. 
That's part of the gospel because part of the gospel, Christ dying, was self-denial. Matthew or Mark 14, I think it's Mark 14, where he says, no, I, I, that uh, no one takes my life from me. I willing, I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to res- raise it up again. The problem with that little scenario is we do have the power to self-deny. We have the power to lay our life down. We don't have any power to raise it back up again. If you stop and think about it. That means we have to lay our lives down in faith. Knowing that the Spirit of God will breathe his breath back into us. And yes, I'm speaking metaphorically. You'll understand this, right? Okay. But the Spirit of God will breathe his, breathe his breath back into it in his due time. Where, again, as I referred to it earlier, James says it, Peter says it, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will raise you up in due time. So our job is to humble ourselves. God's job is to raise us up. If we do try to do God's job, that is raise us up, instead of doing our job, instead of humbling ourselves, then God will do our job for us. He will humble us. The church here in America is going through an incredible time of humbling and most of them don't even recognize it. Nor do they want it. Now, I don't blame them because I don't like being humbled either, to be honest with you. But we have been here been placed here we have been saved in this time we are here for such a time as this so that we stand up and say I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek now that I don't want to get into the Jew first and also the Greek I think that was kind of nullified after Acts 28 where, where Paul finally says to them, you, to the Jews, you don't believe, I'm going to the Gentiles and they will hear it and they will believe. You can look up Acts 28 later on if you want. I don't, I don't want to take the time for that this morning. But, but as, as I, I thought about this idea of the power of God, and, and I also thought about, Paul kind of talks about this idea as well in, in, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Ever talk to people about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for their sins and they look at you like you've just grown the second head, right? And they tell you that it's utter, utter, utter foolishness. It's an indication that they are perishing. Now, when they convey that to me, most of the time that makes me mad, all right? What that should be to me, if I'm really denying myself, is what that really should be to me is that I need to pray for that person even all the more. Because according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. 
It is the power of God. It is the power of God. See, the early church understood this. They lived in a culture that became increasingly hostile to the gospel. And for the first three centuries, in various places, in various times, they began to persecute the church in such a way where they actually were putting people to death. Although statistics bear that more people died as a martyr, more people died for their faith in Jesus Christ in the 20th century than the last 19 centuries combined. Now let that sink in. I've shared that statistic with you before. But let that really sink in. And these were people who were not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because they understood, and we need to understand that the message of the cross is, 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 um, is the power of God. To those who are, who are perishing, it's considered foolishness, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is not only the message and, and the recognition and the understanding of what has saved me, but what informs my life from this time forward. See, that's where it's really important, and that's where it's real difficult. Because I've seen people, I've talked to people, some will admit it, most of them won't. But they got saved, and then they want to continue to basically to live like hell. Like I said, I was going to be blunt this morning, all right? But they are not living like saved people. They don't think like saved people. They don't think about the message and the power of the cross. They don't trust in it. They lean on their own understandings, which we get from the world. So what I, again, as, as I was thinking about this and dreaming about this and waking up and studying it more, r recognizing that this needs to be the narrative from which we go forward as people who claim to be believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the righteousness of God, and I had all kinds of stuff that I outlined relating to the righteousness of God that I, I'm not going to take the time to get into this morning. But, but th this, this idea of the righteousness of God is, is, is the fact that he has given to us his righteousness. I'll unpack it a little bit more. The word righteousness Two words that are used here. You have the word righteousness in verse 17. And you have the righteous or the just, if you have a new King James, uh, in verse 18. Both of them are, from, are basically the same word. One is a noun, one is an adjective. But basically they're the same word, okay? But it, it's a very broad word. It talks about this idea of imparting Proper judgment. 
imparting proper judgment. Like when you stand before a judge. And hopefully you get off or you get your case ruled in your favor. Uh, that's how we normally think about it, right? Um, it talks about proper judgment. Now think about this. To be saved, we had to make a what? To become a Christian, to give our lives to Jesus Christ, we had to make a decision which involved us making a judgment call. Didn't we? We had to exercise some form of righteousness, which I believe is given to us by the Holy Spirit. This word righteousness and righteous also refers to this idea of equality. About us all, all being on an equal plane, all being, being equally treated. And Peter talks about this idea of us who are Christians, we receive the divine nature. I know I've talked about this before and watched a few of you squirm in your seat a little bit, but Peter does talk about this in 1 Peter. That, that, that we have been given the divine nature. Not only were we, 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 were we judged not guilty because we have received Christ, but on top of that, we have been given the divine attributes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of each of us who believe. And he's not dormant. There are times we want to think he is. There are times we even hope he is, right? I won't get into that. But nonetheless, he's not dormant. And he, he's given us that, that sense of even equality with God. That's why Jesus says that, I, that I, I don't call you servants. I call you my friends. I, I love in the scriptures where it talks about Moses and it talks about Abraham where it says that they were friends of God. Jesus says that about you and I. The, the sense of, of equality, but also this, this idea of, of a higher person in authority endowing or giving to someone of a lower status the same type of, 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 uh, of blessing, the same type of substance, whereby then they also become equal. To me, this just fascinates me, that, that God would even do this for us. And it is something that God gives to us. It says that the, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is, that is it is opened up. It, it, is, it is in the passive voice, by the way. So it refers to the righteousness of God that God himself reveals to each one of us. Because we would not get it on our own. But it has been revealed to us from faith to faith. I, 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 I love that saying. Um, a lot of different ways to interpret it due to time. I'm not going to give you every interpretation. I'm just going to cut to the chase and tell you what I think it's talking about. I, I think it... I think it, it, it's referring to the development of our faith. Now, faith is a gift from God. 
I think it's, it's clear in Scripture that we would never believe, we would never have faith, had it not be that the Spirit of God initiated some type of communication with our own souls, where it, goes, it finally goes to our mind and we're like, yeah, I believe that there is a God. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I believe I need to trust in him as my Lord and Savior and give him my life. But that faith, sometimes it starts as just a little ember. And then once we receive him as Lord and Savior, then, then God uses the, the circumstances in our life to begin to grow our faith. Not only the circumstances in our life, but he calls us to a life of discipleship. Not only taking up our cross daily, denying ourselves and following him, but, but, but the spiritual disciplines of prayer, the spiritual discipline of reading the, the, the scripture, uh, of attending church, of service, of giving, these type of things that God uses in our life to grow our faith. And, and, but what this is telling me, if I can find where I'm, where I'm at, uh, that the, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And if the gospel is the power of God to those who believe, that the story of the gospel should never, ever stop informing who we are as people of God. Does that make sense? It's not only where I began, but one of these days we're all going to die. And there is nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing I want to hang on to more in my last moments than the gospel. And to know that Jesus Christ died for me. And as soon as I depart from this body, it's going to be okay. Because although I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I can trust in him. And I can trust on him to get me into his presence. For the righteous live by faith. The righteous one will live by faith. It's a quote from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. Also found in Galatians 3, uh, 11 and Hebrews 10. The just is Romans, shall live is Galatians, by faith is Hebrews. That's just a, really an incredible study in and of itself. But the book of Habakkuk, and I've shared this with you guys before, that, that, that God basically comes in and says, I'm going to do an incredible thing that even if I told you, you're not going to believe it. Oh, really? What is it you're going to do for us, God? I'm going to send the Chaldeans, and they're going to beat you to a pulp. That's the wonderful, incredible, marvelous thing that I'm going to do. Who wants that? Who wants that? Marvelous? And, and, you know, if I were Habakkuk, I would have, I'm glad he didn't say this. Maybe he did and he just didn't write it down. 
But if I were Habakkuk, I would have argued with God. And I would have told him all the things that I had done for him and how dare him do this in my lifetime. Some of you would have done the very same thing, wouldn't you? And God is like, hey, I'm going to do this great, incredible thing. And what God was doing in that interaction with the prophet as he was calling his people to repentance. He was calling his people to have faith in him. He was calling his people to trust in the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith because the righteous people, the righteous ones, the just, it says in the New King James, will live by faith. Do we look at what's going on today and do we see it through the eyes of faith? Or do we see it through some other set of eyes? What, what really struck me about the book of Habakkuk is, is that, that later on, uh, in, it's a very short book. I would, I would encourage you to, to read it. And um, it's also very hard to find. Um, as you can tell as I'm fumbling. The third chapter, which is the last chapter, the very last part of the book, in verse 17, remember this is an agrarian society. He says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the grapes, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. This is sounding pretty bad, isn't it? Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high hills and then it ends it ends with to the chief musician with stringed instruments everything is going south everything is falling apart the Cal God is raising up the Chaldeans they're coming they're not nice people they're going to overrun the entire southern kingdom which is who this was written to so there will be no figs on the tree there will be no grapes on the vine the, the olive orchards will not yield there will be no no animals in 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 the stalls they're messing with the food supply or we like to call it today as i looked out on the san francisco bay as we flew in a couple months ago and saw all the ships in the bay they're messing with the supply chain. And he says, the Lord is my strength. 
and yet I will rejoice in the Lord with joy in God, my salvation. And then when he says to the chief musician, what he, you know what he's really saying here? I'm giving this to the chief musician, put it to music, and let's sing it as a song of praise to God. That's not easy to do. When you know that the Chaldeans are coming and your life as you know it will be no more. Because the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith.